shining a beacon on the bazaar. Kid. Oh, I've just done a massive shit in my knickers. <laughs> no wonder, it's absolutely terrifying. Oh, I can't handle this, Matt. <gasps> Listen, th- there seems to be this beast is prowling now for three days. Three days! Hey, I ain't even open. I can't even look out a window. Do you need to look out a window? Anyway, oh, the thing will have you, can Jesus. Oh, he's looking in front window. Oh, God. Oh. Listen, what we need to do, once and for all, right, um, we need to arm ourselves. So, right, here you go, here's, um, here's that big heavy spoon, big label. Oh, you get the label, cheers, you get the label, right, I'll Coffee. get the Luger. Oh, oh, alright. <laughs> well, you know, you're alright, you're handy with it, Luger. I'm pretty good with it. Yeah. Right, I'll go. Here's a pan lid as well. Oh, oh cool, yeah. You've got a label and pan lid, right. Gladiator now. Oh, God, I can hear it scratching at the door. Jesus Christ! Right, so what happens is, what I want you to do is, you whip the door open real quick and yeah. I'll shoot, right? Okay. Right, one, two. two. Three-three-three-three-three-three-three-three-three-three-three-three-three-three-three-three-three-three-three-three-three-three-three-three-three-three-three-three-three-three-three-three-three-three-three-three-three-three-three-three-three-three-three-three-three-three-three-three-three-three
about like Robot Sarah or something like Ooh, that. Oh, that'd be quite nice. That'd be it? nice, wouldn't it? Oh, I don't know. Speedboat Sam. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds quite good, doesn't it? Isn't it? <laughs> She's coming a little jockey sailor out of it, things like that. Man, we don't want like, to get us off, is it? Yeah, yeah. The last much. thing we need is being physical, isn't it? Like, bloody <laughs> hell, fire. We know what happens, Jesus. I know, that's what happens when you share a bed, isn't it? <laughs> One of these days we'll renovate the rest of it and get ourselves our own bedrooms. <laughs> so no, that's what we're going to do now. We're going to cast our light out and find some strange stories, and maybe even take a little bit of a deeper dive than usual this week. I mm. think you know. Sounds good. Yeah, and if you're enjoying the episodes, um, because now we're up to we're up to episode. Well, it's about episode seventy. We're at sixty-eight wow. at the moment. We've got a couple of specials out there. Yeah, yeah. So we've got a lot of episodes. But if you're liking Crack and Cove, um, get in touch with us. Let us know what you think. Uh, we're at Crack and Cove Podcast at gmail.com or you can get in touch with us at Twitter uh, at Crack and Cove, uh, or Instagram at Crack and Cove Pod, and the usual evil Facebook. You can just uh, Google exactly. us there, yeah, or even actually on the platform. You know what I mean? Just cast your little pinky up and give us a five star. <laughs> well, listen, <laughs> people have asked us already. You know how how do you leave a rating? And I generally leave a link on the social media to Spotify. But uh, you can't yeah. rate us on Spotify. Yeah. Um, on the Podbean app, which is the main uh, host for us. Thanks, Podbean. Uh, there's a way of actually rating us on there, so you can actually go. There is to, on yeah. Spotify. I, I, I give a five star to another show the other day. Did you really? The I top right hand side of it is three little lines. If you press that, All you right. can de subscribe. Don't do that, but then, <laughs> yeah. then you can do you know rate yeah. it and just do a five star. Oh, have yeah. a look at that. Yeah, I'm really good at cast doing all that. You know, <laughs> if I enjoy a podcast, <laughs> I rate it five. <laughs> well, the best one for us is actually an Apple. If you, if you are an Apple subscriber and you listen to us on the Apple Podcast uh, app. Uh, have a little look on our group, and if you can give us a five star review, it'd be wonderful. If you feel like we're five star worthy, or a little just a little message to say enjoy the podcast, it'd be absolutely fantastic. Because all those little things bump us up the ratings, and you never know, uh, more than five people might listen to us. Because <laughs> 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 we could do with a few listeners, it would be very nice. Um, it would be nice to actually sort of like do a little bit of a Patreon thing, not to everybody, but for those who, who feel like helping out. Um, and that way then we can actually I am a little bit worried about the computer at the moment <laughs> <laughs> it's smoking a little bit isn't it? it's a little bit yeah and it's, uh, it'd be nice to get one that's not steam powered <laughs> it's like I have the engine but yeah so it's, uh, just to keep the podcast going because we don't make any money at this at all if yeah. anything it's we're in the red <laughs> <laughs> we're shitting it but it's the year of the cove is this year, year it's going to hit big time when we're going to get big bucks and we'll yeah. give you more cove and if you know, obviously if we do uh, the most important thing to, for us isn't actually about sort of like a Patreon or money or anything like that. He's just telling your mates about it. Saying, yeah, well, yeah. Is it? it Gives you a phone. Is this podcast? Have a listen to it. Yeah, that yeah. sort of thing. Just get get your mates listening because it'd be great. To, great to see a little boost. If you get on a bus, make them all rate it. Get yeah. them, get them all subscribed to get it. Get yourself a loop. Get on a bus. <laughs> get on a plane. Seven four seven. Yeah, that's it. Lots of people on them. <laughs> Trains, tubes, anything like that. Bring a luger anywhere. Yeah, anywhere. Yeah, it'd be good. So, without further ado, I think it's time for me. Uh, rather than begging again. <laughs> oh please, please! It's time for us to get casting. Yes. <laughs> so 
So the first cab off the rank today is um, <laughs> it's a bit of a. I, I quite like a chancer sometimes. You know oh, I mean? yeah. I yeah. like a chancer. I like somebody who's going to chance his arm and see where he can get in life. You know, yeah, like, yeah. You know. And um, this guy. I think he takes chance to a brand new level. Oh, right. Nice. Um, maybe even being a bit of a Billy Bullshit as well, if you're honest. Because <laughs> right? this is a story of a guy called Ty, right? A guy called Ty DeLorean. Wow. Right? And he says Ty DeLorean claims the Taliban wants to buy his Back to the Future cars. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't know if you know about you know the legend of John DeLorean, right? So I, I read a little bit other weeks. I didn't know it was something to do with Ireland, didn't he? He's an Irish chap. He was built in Ireland. Absolutely right. There was an Irish manufactured sort of luxury sports car, yeah. which is made famous because it was the car in Back to the Future. Yeah, the gullwing doors, everything oh, like that. Yeah, yeah. Sweet, cool-looking car. Yeah. And the good thing about those cars now is there's a company. It's, they've bought the moulds for the yeah. car. So, you know, the, the, the famous looking chassis, the gold windows, and everything yeah, like that. Yeah. They're making electric cars wow. that fit in all that body. So, you can <laughs> buy yourself an electric DeLorean yeah, and buzz around in, you know what I mean? And I think they look really, really cool. I think yeah, it's one of the yeah. coolest cars that's ever been made, you know. And um, But uh, the car, it was, it was plagued by. Shall we call it financial mismanagement on an epic scale, right? <laughs> to the point, I think John DeLorean actually went to jail. Wow, yeah, bad. Yeah, the whole thing. It could have been. It could have been an absolute dream, but yeah. he turned into a nightmare. You know? God, it's a shame with all that advertising and that. You know, what I mean, we could all be driving around in them, yeah, the balls up. Well, I mean, if the way it was advertised at the time as well, it's almost like it was that, like the uh, Tesla of the time. You know, yeah. this amazing car which was built locally, kind of thing. Yeah, and it, and it wasn't. And it was a full, um, full aluminium body as well. Wow, really? nice. yeah. yeah, and that's what that's when you can aluminum, it, aluminum, <laughs> as they say in America. <laughs> but the the good thing about that's why you have that brushed steel finish, yeah, brushed yeah. aluminum finish and met metallic finish because it won't corrode. Oh, nice. So that's another good thing about the body. Yeah. Very very cool car. Yeah. But this guy calls himself Ty DeLorean, right? Mm -hmm. And this is a story from Edward Church, reported for the uh, reporting for the Cornwall Live, which we had a couple from Cornwall Live. Actually, yeah. I quite like it. It's, it's, uh, <laughs> A good rag. Is it, I like it, it makes me laugh, yeah, it's fun. So he says, the Cornishman, Ty DeLorean, claims to be the son of car legend John DeLorean, and he said he's received an intriguing business opportunity from the Taliban. <laughs> Fucking hell. So Newquay resident Ty DeLorean, 40, has been trying to reignite the DeLorean Motor Company, DMC, by building hybrids of the iconic cars mixed with Reliant Robins. Ooh, that's a <laughs> shitty mix, isn't it? <laughs> and Taliban are all over it. <laughs> what, what I like here is his, his legal battle with DMC itself sees him being accused of passing off his prototype cars as legitimate DeLoreans. Although Ty himself claims he has a right to do so. Because he's thinking, well, it, it was me dad who yeah. did it. If it's his dad, right, yeah. you know. <laughs> In his search for opportunities to sell his cars, Ty said he has had offers from film studios, automobile organisations, and most recently, the new government of a South Asian country. The government of Afghanistan, which in 2021 was famously taken over by a brutal former militant group, the Taliban, has allegedly reached out to Ty personally with an offer to produce his cars. <laughs> Ty said the offers arrived via email <laughs> <laughs> from Nigeria <laughs> and he considered taking them up on them if he was allowed to. Ty says 
They emailed me saying they want to invest in and mass produce my cars. They want to use them for the government officials. <laughs> and they said the head of the Taliban, Hibatullah Akunzada, signed it off. And I'm now dealing with his deputy in the transport minister. <laughs> this is like instead of Back to the Future, it's Back to the Stone Age. <laughs> <laughs> That's where we want to go, please. With the Taliban. Do you want a little look at these cars? <laughs> yes, please. I can't fucking stare at that. <laughs> it looks like that um, that robot dog from uh, Doctor does, Who, yeah. doesn't it? With ears in that. It does, it does. That is so shit. Is it a three wheeler? It's a three wheeler. That is insane. It is the Reliant Robin, right? <laughs> the plastic, the famed plastic pig. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. It's a Taliban. I'm just thinking, yeah, this is what we want to cruise around the desert roads in, you know? <laughs> shit, little three wheelers. <laughs> So Ty shared with Cornwall Live a letter supposedly from current Afghani transport minister Kudratullah Zaki, which said, The civil aviation of Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan extends its compliments to you and your brilliant motor vehicle <laughs> at DeLorean Motor Company. Your amazing achievements were brought to my attention in your latest media interviews, which has gone around the world and landed on my desk in a local newspaper. The LTA, which is their government, yeah. would like to move forward with investment in your business as we have strong ties with the rural markets and we believe India is already interested in your product. It's impossible to drive on them roads in that fucking car. Is it possible to drive on these roads in that car? <laughs> One pothole, you're done. Can you imagine? A car, that is just such a cranky wind-up, isn't it? It's one of his mates down pub. It's definitely one of his mates down pub. He said, I've got a great way to wind Ty DeLorean up. Bringing Taliban into it is genius, <laughs> isn't it? it? They must be pissing themselves <laughs> over their pints right now. Because, oh, you won't believe these guys. He's only fucking talked to Cornwall Live, hasn't he? Yeah, he's in the price. Yes! He's a genius. Genius move, is this? The letter goes on to say that Ty's cars would be perfect for Afghanistan's roads. <laughs> they need new cars in the country. <laughs> Ty's cars, built over the course of several years, have become both a passion project and a business prospect for him. They resemble the classic DeLorean car, as featured in the Back to the Future movies, but are built out of Reliant Robins. <laughs> <laughs> the Taliban has been widely criticised around the world, centering around its poor records surrounding women's rights, ultra-conservative politics and censoring of opposition. I'm blowing up that bloody massive budder, I'm still furious about that. Oh, they're blowing up lots of stuff. Oh, oh. Mate, right at the beginning, wasn't it? I'm really pissed off about yeah, that. Yeah, anybody does... They just think he's thousands of years old, he's yeah. blow it up. That's it. Oh. But what gets me is, is, well, for them being so sort of so ultra in their religion, it surely still respect other religions too. Yeah. You don't have to turn around and blow up an ancient monument yeah, like that. Yeah. You know, it shows absolute ignorance. Yeah, it shows yeah. utter, utter religious... Well, not just religious, <laughs> just utter sort of cultural ignorance. It is, anything, yeah, you know? yeah. Hate it. And he could just tell they had a like, plastic explosive they didn't know what to do with it. Like, mm, <laughs> I want to blow some <laughs> <blow> up. up. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so after its militarised overthrow of Afghanistan in 2021, a few countries recognised the Taliban-controlled government. Ty, however, said he'd consider taking them up on the offer, but the UK Home Office said he's not allowed, as every individual he's communicated with is on the British government's sanction list. <laughs> <laughs> See, it sounds like he's possibly been going down loads of war-torn countries just to sell his plastic pigs. 
He said, in my ambition, which is sometimes bigger than reality, <laughs> I'd like to see the vehicle as a peace symbol, if you like, like my father's was. It could be used to negotiate with the Taliban and help get them to start dropping some of their hardline stances. And if they were to do that, maybe I could. They're doing anything bad, I won't do business with them. You <laughs> absolute nutter. Even in Back to the Future movie, them terrorists at the beginning were trying to blow up the DeLorean. <laughs> <laughs> you ain't got a chance. <laughs> a rocking launcher at you straight away. <laughs> they need the country rebuilding, and the US and British have caused far more atrocities and deaths than the Taliban ever did. <laughs> Jesus, steady on, lad. He's not doing himself any favours, <laughs> is he? <laughs> if the Home Office lets me, I'd certainly consider it, he says. I mean, come on, mate. Yeah, look into who's actually contacting you. Isn't the Taliban, and Taliban are horrible. <laughs> Thing is, with, with this guy, uh, I can see where he's coming from, or what he's... What he's He's just got this dream, hasn't he? I mean, yeah. He's had a silly idea. Yeah. He's obviously always wanted a DeLorean himself. <laughs> Couldn't we, afford it. We can look back on the guy, I'm sure. I'm going to have a little bit of a dive later on into this chap, you know what I mean? But I, I'm honestly of the opinion that he's no relation whatsoever with no, DeLorean. No. With um, John DeLorean. He's, he's, this is why he's got legal issues already with DMC, right? Yeah, yeah. DeLorean Motor Company. Uh, and now he's obviously coming around and saying he's going to sort of night deal with the Taliban. He's cash shit anyway. He's a man's an absolutely mad fantasist. <laughs> yeah. Which is fair dues, in it? But don't start contacting Taliban. Is, is it fair dues? Mm. Is he, is, does he need help, really? Yeah, lock him up. <laughs> you know, well, I'm not going to go that far. But, you know, <laughs> I think he just does need sort of like it. I think he needs a bit of an arm around his shoulder, sort of. Because yeah, yeah. if he's spending all his time, he might be getting himself in the shit here. Yeah, yeah. Because if, for any reason, he, the slim chances if he has been talking to the Afghanistan government. <laughs> you could see this guy rolling up in Afghanistan, yeah. couldn't you? Thinking, I'm going to build cars here, this is it, the dreams here. He could get himself in a whole yeah, heap of shit. Straight kidnapped. Yeah. And, and he's criticising the British government. He's getting himself in hot water with a flipping DeLorean motor company because he's claiming that he's John DeLorean's son. Yeah. If he was John DeLorean's son, I'm sure the DeLorean motor company would be saying, yes, you are his son, yeah. we've got a few legal quibbles. He's <laughs> no evidence. I think he's trying to claim like, you know, he's the love child of John DeLorean. Yeah, yeah. You know I mean? But you'll be able to track him when he changed his name after watching Back to the Future so many times. <laughs> That's exactly what's happening here, poor guy. So we're going to watch this story a little bit, you know what I mean? But it could be quite a good little uh, run <laughs> He's a success, because that'd be <laughs> brilliant, brilliant you know what I mean? Because you're all Taliban bezzing round in little DeLoreans. <laughs> <laughs> with rocket launchers on exactly. back and stuff. Can you imagine if there's a land war again and that's what they're using? That's only weenie. Buzzing through desert on plastic pigs. <laughs> what a sight that would be. Oh, so yeah, let's, let's hope it comes to fruition. This guy becomes a millionaire just of making his, his mad little cars and he hope he doesn't come to any harm. Yeah, he does seem a bit of an innocent, doesn't he? <laughs> <laughs> and if you are the mate down the pub that's taking the piss out of him, stop it. <laughs> no, don't. Keep it going. Because a genius. <laughs> Genius. <laughs> if you are the, the bloke down the pub, please get in touch with us. <laughs> <laughs> True, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's all we want. I thought 
this is what I said about earlier, wanting uh, something a bit meatier. Mm. No. So mm. what we're going to have to do, we're going to strap in now, right? Aye. And you got something, uh, something that's going to sort of tickle your taste buds, I think, you know. Juicy, juicy. So here we go. It is the early summer of 1764. The spring rains are but a distant memory for young Marie-Jeanne Vallette as she tends her cattle in the Mirquois forest just outside the town of Langoyne. But those rains have made the meadows and fields lush and green, and for that she is thankful. Is this France then? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the animals of the forest fall silent, and her cattle suddenly become restless. Something is in the forest, and Marie is afraid. The bushes erupt, and in an explosion of power and murderous intent, a great beast charges at young Marie, rapidly closing the distance between them, her violent death almost a certainty. But at the last second, the bulls of the herd charge the beast, driving it away to a distance where it snarls and slavers, its blazing eyes still focused on the plucky young cattle herder. The beast charges again, but the bulls are ready forming a defensive ring around the girl, and together they drive the beast from whence it came, the dark depths of the impenetrable Mercois forest. Fucking good bulls! Jesus, go on bulls! <laughs> Later, Marie-Jean Vallette would describe the beast as being like a wolf, but not a wolf. The mountainous region of France known as a massive centrale is no stranger to wolves, and all the cattle herders and shepherds know their natural nemesis as well as they know their own herds. So when Marie-Jean Vallette said that this was no wolf, people listened and grew worried. A short time later, the worst fears of the people of the region were confirmed. 14-year-old shepherdess Jean Boulette was found slaughtered, her neck and head terribly mauled. Fear gripped the remote mountain community. This was the beginning of a three-year reign of terror, caused by a hideous horror that came to be known of the Beast of Gévaudan. I've been dying to cover this oh one for ages. Oh, God. Eating the girls, though, isn't it? Or does he, is he munching them or just ripping their heads off? And... He's, he's, ba he's hunting for food. Yeah, yeah. He's hunting for food. He's basically savagely slaughtering them. You know, oh, and he likes a lady meat. He likes, well, it does, but yeah. I think what it's doing, it's... A bit bye. <laughs> <laughs> Swings both ways. <laughs> <laughs> but I think what it is, it's because some of the girls and young people were taking certain jobs of that time. Like yeah. that. They were out in exposed areas. Yeah, the sod on hills. Yeah, yeah, that's it. They were, they were vulnerable. Yeah. Now, two years earlier, on September the eighth, seventeen sixty-two, a young shepherd had disappeared, a little lad, oh, yeah. and only his partially eaten remains were uncovered, and they were quickly buried. So this proves that the region was no stranger to predators. They were used to it. They knew yeah. that kids sometimes got killed out there. Yeah. It was all part of the you know, part and parcel of life in, in the mountains, right? Although some speculate that this indeed may have been the first attack of the beast of Gévaudan. Mm. But if this had been some sort of speculative attack by the beast, perhaps searching for rich hunting grounds, then it wasn't until two years later that it took up permanent residence in the region 
wreaking havoc across an area of some 90 square kilometres. So it's a big old hunting yeah, uh, yeah. range it's got, you know. Now I thought I'd give you a little bit of background of what the region's like, you know, yeah. because I think it's important to the story as is. The massive Central is a dramatic region. A long dormant supervolcano huh. that's collapsed and weathered into a huge mountain range with some peaks as high as 5,000 feet. Wow. Now that's what the Lake District is. Yeah. It's one mountain, one volcano was the is Lake it? District. Yeah, the whole oh. Lake District was one supermassive volcano. Yeah, I don't And collapsed in on itself. Wow, I never knew yeah, that. Yeah, that's, and that's what it is. So if you actually look at a map of the lake, you'll see it's almost like the way the valleys run out, almost like from a central sort of like. Yeah. Run. And that's the same as the Massive Central, but Massive Central is a lot bigger. Is it? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's in It's in the centre of France. Yeah. And it's weird because there's even, um, there's a lot of like the buildings in the area, there was a, a geologist, a quite early geologist, sort of similar time actually, he'd come by and he, he was amazed that they used these weird cobbles everywhere yeah. to build, make buildings, right, and or coat the outside of it. They were hexagonal with these columns, right. these cobbles. Like well, a fifty frame piece. Yeah, sort of yeah. that kind of sort of shit. Yeah, you know, and um, and he was asking, well, "Where do you get these? Where do you fashion them from?" And they showed him to the quarry, and the quarry where they're getting them from—it's all over the massive central. It's like um, the Giant's Causeway, you know. Ah, oh, yes. It's yeah. like that, but these whole yeah. massive areas where oh, they just chip these things out and chip them down to size and wow. pop them and build with them. You know <laughs> what I mean? It's really weird. But that's because it's a volcanic, you know, yeah, a bit volcanic basalt, and that's the stone yeah. that's used like in the region. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll get some of them French ones. <laughs> but the mountains also trap clouds. Right. They create their own ecosystem in the area, you know what yeah. I mean? And their own weather. Yeah. And this creates torrential downpours and freak storms that can appear from nowhere. Filling gullies with flash floods and making the terrain near impossible to travel in while beast hunting. Oh, you can imagine it, can't you? Thunder and lightning yeah. and pouring rain. But these, uh, that's exactly what it was like, though. Yeah, you know what yeah. I mean, on, the, on these efforts. These efforts God, for the scent, it can't be any good, innit? Hunting them down when you need a bit of scent. Absolutely 100% right, yeah. because that's one of the main ways that sort of like the, the would go about the business is to sort of say they mm. needed to find this thing. Mm. Gang of poochies. Yeah. But before any hunting took place on the part of the human populace, the beast itself was making fine sport of the young women, children and lone men who it came upon in the forests and valleys of Gévaudan. By now the deaths were coming thick and fast, so much so that records stopped listing the names of those killed in a lot of cases, mm -hmm. simply noting that the tally rose rapidly becoming dozens and dozens slaughtered by the beast. There were many, many sightings, and the most disturbing of these sightings were of the beast with a mate and with pups. Oh, <laughs> that problem's not going away. Exactly. Is it a wolf then, or what? This showed that the beast was no longer slaying to fill its own belly, but that of its mate and their young, and something had to be done. Now, it's interesting you should say this, because what we'll do a little bit later on, I've got a lot with, I found a great website here, and what I'll do is I'll do a link to this, yeah. where uh, it shows a lot of the pictures and imagery of the time, mm. right? So, um, we can also have a little look at what the beast might have been. What we need to do, there's a few clues, actually. There's a few mm. clues in, in, in its behaviour, so that's why I've talked Encourages you listen to something. Oh, well, what's that? Yeah, oh, well, you know. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever that means. <laughs> <laughs> 
An incident that tipped the scales took place on January the 12th, 1765. Now, no, people, January the 12th, they've got the date of it. Wow, people yeah. know what this was happening. It was, it was yeah. being documented you know, really well. So on January the 12th, 1765, the beast attacked 10-year-old Jacques Portefeuille and a group of seven friends ranging from ages 8 to 12. Oh, God, that's awful, isn't it? A rabid fucking beast. However, Portefex and his plucky band of youths stood their ground and formed a tight-knit formation together. <laughs> Who are these and guys? And they managed to hold the monster off. Oh, just waving lollipops and yo-yos and stuff. Well, young Jack then led a counter-attack with sticks, <laughs> <laughs> driving off the creature. God, he's a plucky young chap, yeah, isn't he? Isn't he? The children were rewarded by the king, Louis the Fifteenth, right? <laughs> and Portefex himself was given an education paid for by the crown. Wow! <laughs> what happened to him? I don't know, let's just talk about this dude. What happened to him? Well, hey, what, yeah, man. I mean, can you imagine that? You, you know, your, you know, your little son there, and he's out and about, and he's a beast of a <laughs> He's driven the beast off, saved his friend. <laughs> and then suddenly the king's given him a free education. That is mental. I love that. Well done to Louis for giving it, though. That's yeah, it. Deserves. Exactly, that's why uh, I think, you know, reward the young chap, you know. Why? Now the newspapers lapped up these accounts of childhood heroism faster than the beast could lap up the blood of its victims. <laughs> <laughs> faster and more efficient printing presses at the time, and newly invented methods of printing imagery in those newspapers mm -hmm. and the fret meant that the French press went wild for new tales of horror and heroism from Gévaudan. Graphic pictures of the monster mauling the men and women of the massive centrale were splashed across the tabloids of the time. And so great was the hunger for these stories that the beast of Gévaudan became a worldwide sensation. Wow, going it live. It became the very first news story ever to go worldwide. Crikey, it that's interesting. Yeah. It was because the newspaper, local newspapers um, became interested in printing all the local newspapers. Yeah. It went then went to Paris. Yeah. And the newspapers of Paris were, Paris went wild for this story. And after that, it travelled all across Europe. Yeah, and as a result yeah. of that, it sort of like went to the colonies, a place like Belgium and stuff eventually, because these newspapers went out to, to the places in the Belgian colonies in Africa and places like this. We, we love it, though, don't we? Like a beast, blood, knowing children. And, and, and that. childhood heroism as well. Yeah, that's a good little because bit Because what had it, happened, yeah. uh, it, it, the Seven Years' War had just finished against uh, Great Britain. Yeah. Uh, they'd been battling for seven years. Crikey. And so the... Um, Basically, everybody was knackered, depleted, sick of war. Yeah. And this new terror, it really caught the imagination. In it plague time, then, if Seven Year War ended, I thought that all like around the. When you say plague time, oh, Black Death should I Black say? Black Death was Black Death was uh, just before uh, the. Uh, it was just before 1666. Was the Black all Death, right. Because it was. As as the play came to an end, it was the Great Fire of London happened in 1666, right. and that almost like created a full stop. But. That wasn't the only sort of plague outbreak in Europe. It yeah. happened all. It just kept happening yeah, here, yeah. there, and everywhere. So you can basically say that everywhere from sort of like fifteen hundred to sort of like eighteen hundred, there's plagues, there's, there's happy, outbreaks. Happy, happy times, then really. Yeah, well, yeah. What <laughs> easy, you know. What happy times. Jeez. Oh, in between sort of like cholera epidemics, you know, childhood deaths, yeah. terrible sort of like fires and things like that. There were occasional massive beasts turned up to maul everyone. <laughs> <laughs> and they loved it. Yeah. <laughs> 
Now, because these news stories had kind of gone worldwide, it was yeah. massive news. Um, King Louis the Fifteenth couldn't look the other way anymore. You yeah, know what I mean? yeah, he'd kind of been sort of thinking, "Oh, this is terrible," and brushing stuff under the carpet. You know, he'd been somewhat reluctant to get involved, although the petitions from the citizens of the region were growing by the day. His pockets were almost empty after decades of war, and the last thing he needed now was a new battle on his own turf against an enemy that might simply prove to be a big dog. <laughs> <laughs> Nevertheless, the pressure to act was too great. Yeah. He, he had to do something. The eyes of the world are watching him. Well, there were, but also, the, the thing is, as well, it was a deeply religious country at the time. Right. So there's a lot of like popes, bishops, and things like this within the region. Yeah. They were they were sort of like applying leverage too and look because a lot of the France has always been a case where you have the poshies and the peasants kind of yeah. thing you know this was before the French Revolution yeah. and there was a lot of dissatisfaction amongst the peasantry yeah. that they were overlooked within the provinces yeah. that um, and all the money was just staying up in Paris yeah. it seems, yeah. you know, fucking loads of cake and that yeah that's <laughs> it you know, so they um so there was sort of there were there was a lot of dissent, and of course the king still needed to keep people on side as much as possible. The last thing the Pochos ever want is, is people to kick off. Yeah, dirty peasant uprising. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. They're terrified of it all the time, you know. So eventually, got to the point, it's like, shit, I'm gonna have to do something. Yeah. You know? But my popper strings. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. How can I afford new shoes? <laughs> so. King Louis XV sends Jean-Baptiste Duhamel of the Clermont Prince Dragoons. Well, that sounds a right track. That's the right dude, isn't it? What's his first yeah. name again? Jean-Baptiste yeah. Duhamel. Yeah, Baptiste. <laughs> yeah, mate. Him and his troops, I think there was about 59 troops were sent, if I, if I remember. The numbers vary. There's quite yeah. a lot of different things. I've taken, I couldn't even say how many different sources I found from this. Yeah. I use about, about 10 different sources. HP Daddy's tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> For fuck's sake. <laughs> that was a lot big sardine one before you came in here. No. That's what your belly king's going to you do hear my belly, it's my uh, sausage and spam that just <laughs> slipped down. <laughs> like a greasy worm. <laughs> <laughs> So yes, yeah, so Jean-Baptiste Duhamel, he rocks up on the scene with his Clermont Prince Dragoons and they, they arrive at um, Les Gévaudins, right? Duhamel quickly organised the locals and huge hunts took place. Some, it was claimed, involved as many as 30,000 people. <laughs> <laughs> and just the beast got here, they're not coming. Exactly. Uh, exactly. Oh, you donuts. Now, reading between the lines, it seems that the captain might not have been the easiest person to work with. Right. right? And these huge and spectacular hunts were perhaps as ineffective as boatfuls of amateurs going out to hunt for jaws with a case of Bud Light and a stick and stack of dynamite. <laughs> <laughs> that's why. That's the thing I'm imagining. You basically got it's a mob. Oh, a huge mob though. And I think the well, I think why there's so many people. What they'll have done is I think he'll have sent his uh, his dragoons out to various villages and towns yeah. and says, right on this Sunday. Everybody get together, get yeah. your stuff, get your guns out, get your rifles, whatever you got, your pitchforks, swords. Oh, party time, spinners. innit? And they got, they just act, they just rallied all the people yeah. in the villages to get out hunting all at the same time. Yeah. And it just it got all like wildfire. All pubs would be well happy about it. Oh, they'd be like, yeah, yeah, tomorrow we're all well hard. Yeah. <laughs> Eventually, although extremely zealous in his efforts, 
non-cooperation on the part of the local herders and farmers stalled Duhamel's efforts. Mm. Now I think he got to a point where he's just trying to get people out all the time. Yeah. He's like, we've got to go hunt, we've got to go hunt. And I think the locals think, yeah, it's easy for you saying that, mate. We've got li- lives to live, we've still yeah. got to get on with our jobs. Yeah. We can't be out hunting all the time. And he was getting really frustrated that he couldn't get mobs out <laughs> hunting <laughs> <Yeah>. constantly. <laughs> I mean, it's like now you, you're a busy guy, we've got the lighthouse to run it. Mm. It's like having to go out hunting for entire <laughs> yeah, days. I just couldn't be ours. You yeah. want to sit down and tell it. That's what I think that he's like, we're doing. <laughs> oh, go away. <laughs> oh, we've got Strictly on. We're going. <laughs> but on several occasions, he almost shot the beast. God. He was hampered by the incompetence of his guards. Uh-huh. So all the people he was using, the people in the way, he was almost like sort of get, you know, he oh, ought, sounds alright, bumbly mass, doesn't it? Oh yeah. yeah, and that's what that's what this guy's this captain was a professional. Yeah. He was a slick guy from the city. He knew yeah. his onions, he'd been in war because of course the seven years old. It'll probably been battle hardened yeah, individual, you know. Crack shot. And what sort of the straw that broke the camel's back for him is when the militia from the village of Le Malzier were not present and ready when the beast was witnessed crossing the Trullier River, Duhamel became frustrated. Well, I bet. He's going to be a nice target in the river as well, isn't he? Exactly, it was exposed. He was there, out in the open, and of course the rifles and weaponry of the time weren't as accurate as as, as obviously modern weaponry. So So you probably need that pack, actually, don't you? Just to be pot-shotting at it. Exactly, that's is it. But it seems then, you see, Duhamel probably sort of like the word is get back that he's, the beast's still around. Yeah. Stop sucking your own croissants and get out there! <laughs> <laughs> and, and this is it, but the word has got back to the king now. Oh shit. Right, so as a result of that, Louis XV agreed to send two professional wolf hunters. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Now get this for a name. Jean-Charles Marc-Antoine Vumessel de Nevelle and his son Jean-Francois, right? <laughs> so they're basically known as the, uh, the, the well, it's his father and son, wow. which is the de Nevelles, the calls, right? Yeah, um, the family, but he's, he's obviously, he's a bit of a flash Harry, is this yeah. guy, you know? We'll just call them sort of a Dinevel Junior and Senior sort of thing, uh-huh. I mean, but the, the father and son rock up to hunt the wolves, you know? But when the two, uh, the two de Nevelles rocked up, um, Captain Duhamel was forced to stand down and return to his headquarters in Clermont-Ferrand. Cooperating with Deneval was impossible as the two differed too much in their strategies. Duhamel organised wolf hunting parties while Deneval and his son believed the beast could only be shot using stealthy techniques. I reckon that's fair, yeah. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm sort of in agreement here, you know what I mean? But it's like... It's tricky because I don't think a hunt of this kind's ever been done before with this particular kind of beast. It's yeah, hard to say. Yeah. Very, very hard At to say. At least they've had a go at flushing it out with masses. They've tried, well, they've tried it. Yeah, they've, tried, yeah. they've tried the things they know, but I mean, I can imagine Duhamel must be oh, must be furious leaving. You yeah, know? yeah. But I can also imagine the uh, Denevels being very pleased with themselves rocking up. Mm. And I bet it was almost like they were the, the, these two coming in. Come on, you are cool. You're yeah. Out on. <laughs> <laughs> a wolf hunter. Oh, yeah, man. Just in wolf furs and stuff. Yeah, well, you're definitely, they'll have furs on them. Well, they're definitely yeah. wolf furs, yeah. Father and son Denevel arrived in Clermont Ferrand on February the 17th, 1765, bringing eight bloodhounds that had been trained in wolf hunting. Over the next four months, the pair hunted for Eurasian wolves, 
believing that one or more of these animals was the beast. Mm -hmm. Despite enjoying the reputation as a great wolf hunter in Normandy, Denevel having destroyed 1,200 wolves during his career, wow. the beast remained at large. Moreover, his surly demeanour towards the Gévaudines, which is the local sort of thing, yeah. people of the Gévaudin uh, region, and he was like this with the local government officials, including the Bishop of Mende, it did not place him in a favourable position. No matter how much favour he had at the court of the king, there was, uh, where he was vouched for by the intendant of his Provence, Madame or Monsieur L'Element de Levigné. So he had people, he came in good sort of a recommendation, but rocking up from Normandy into the sort of centre of France, I think he just had this, he was looking down on the um, on the local sort of like hicks, as yeah. he sort of thought of them, peasants, thinking everybody's was well He went to his head a bit, didn't he? He went to his head, he, I think he rocked up just thinking he's way better than anybody yeah, else anyway, yeah. he's a big head. Stand aside, I am here the professional. <laughs> yeah, exactly, you know what I mean? And of course... You've, you've got you judged on your on your sort of um, results, aren't you? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, four months deep. It's it, like, come on, lad. That's it. So they've been there in February, right? That's when they arrived. But public confidence in the Denevals collapsed on the twenty fourth of May during the popular fair at Malzieu. The beast made its first attack of the day oh, at Julianges critically wounding 20-year-old Marguerite Martin, who received extreme unction by the roadside from the vicar of Saint-Privat. That extreme unction is on the last rites. Right. You know. <laughs> what do you mean? But then, a mile from this episode, in Amorettes, a boy of 11 was seized, but the beast was put to flight by neighbours coming to his aid. Cool. It then fell upon a boy and a girl as they emptied a copse, you know, just like a little sort of area of woodland, you know. Yeah. And it devoured 13-year-old Marie Vallette, even as her companion attempted to fight off the assailant. Oh, get eaten alive. Eaten alive. Christ, oh man, that is disgusting. I'm watching it and I'll pull that trying to beat it off and it's um, snelling. <laughs> 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 He's just stood there wanking. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> it's gone right off. <laughs> Don't say this every day, do you? <laughs> oh, <geez>. <laughs> <laughs> so he was attempting to fight off the assailants. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> One region underneath. <laughs> One, you chimbrick. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> when the boy brought help from the local villages, they found only a headless corpse from which most of the flesh had been eaten. It stripped it, it eaten the head, eaten the fucking head. Oh, eaten the face and off a fucking skull. It, yeah. Oh. A huntsman of, um, uh, who was working for Danaval was sent to set an ambush at the cops of Valais, but the beast did not return. So, you know, the guy, the, the Danavals have got other guys working for him a bit here now, you know what yeah. I mean? So they said, right, go over, set a trap round there, get ready for him, right? 
but he didn't return. That was it, you know. I think, yeah. in a weird way, it was a good plan because I think because he'd left, he'd left some food. It left yeah. part of the corpse. Quite often, beasts of this kind will return to the kill, yeah. you know. And they're not saying they would have left the, the body out, but mm. you know. Instead, the beast arrived at Lossiere and attacked Marguerite Bonny, 18, by the village of Marcelac, emerging from its hiding place in a juniper thicket and rending her clothes until she was naked from the waist up. <laughs> so that's our lad again. <laughs> <laughs> he comes out and went, But to her aid came 16-year-old Pierre Tonavel, whose aunt had been slain by the beast on 23rd of February. Whoa. Wielding an improvised spear, he wounded the beast wow. and fled. God. He's like, oh, I'll cover your dumplings. <laughs> <laughs> News of these depredations reached the marketplace at Malzieu, and even as the beast went about its business, and it prompted many people at the fair to pack up their wares and head home despondent. So this, this I mean, these fairs are huge events. He really sound like the wolf of working there. <laughs> <laughs> He's got along with his business. Right, anybody want a pie? <laughs> Can we get your pies? I want some heads. <laughs> Strip clean. But yeah, I mean, it's, this is the thing. It's it's like these fairs were important for trade, for, for yeah. communities and everything like that. Happy, happy times. But then, what have they heard? They've heard about four or five people who have been mauled, right. murdered, killed, eaten, all sorts of Man, stuff. And they're and packed up. And that's the only thing they really look forward to, isn't it? Big fairs and stuff yeah. like that. No um, telly. Well, what's terrifying as well is this beast must be appear, seeming to appear here, there and everywhere. Yeah, everywhere at once that day. Yeah, but it could be the case it's not just the one. Uh, it could be the case that it's like it's got its uh, uh, partners on the kill as well, yeah. or even perhaps I don't know the age of the, of the pups at this time. Yeah. You know, it could be the case they're involved. Who knows? But um, obviously, with all those mouths to feed, there's a lot of people need killing. Yeah. You know, that's the thing. So Louis the Fifteenth, upon hearing of the events of Twenty Fourth of May, now he must be getting fucked yeah. off. <laughs> you can imagine <laughs> really throwing a strombie. He's thinking, oh shit, here we go, right? He became furious <laughs> and informed his court that he intended to replace the Denevals, who had fared no better than Duhamel before them. And he intended to replace them with Francois, Antoine, Marquet Argent, his officer of the Royal Bedchamber, Knight Equerry, and Royal Military Order of Saint Louis. And he served as the king's official gun bearer. Wow. So he's his man with a gun. I love that he's going up stages, you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> you know, this is the man now. This is the best in the country, isn't it? He's, uh, he's the gun bearer to the king and lieutenant of the hunt under the king. <laughs> and this guy, Francois Tant um, Antoine is his name, Francois Antoine, he's 71 years old. <laughs> <laughs> Which for this time is absolutely ancient. Yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? Fucking hell. So the royal gun bearer departed for the Gévaudan on 8th of June. Antoine and the Danavelles cooperated in the field until 18th of July. So they worked together for a while to start yeah. with. I think he kind of got to know the ropes a bit, knew what was what, where's, where's everything, right? But then it was decreed that the Danavelles would be sent home, giving Antoine complete control of the hunt. And Deneval and Son 
soon returned to Normandy after they were mocked for their futile efforts at the court of the king. Ah, they came in proper cocky, didn't they? they like, did. we're Billy Big Dicks. Look at us. Stand down, people, you see. Exactly. And they well and truly had their ass smacked. <laughs> A contemporary was noted as saying the Denavals bore the shame tantamount to that of a fox who had been caught by a chicken. <laughs> yeah. oh, oh, that's brutal for them. <laughs> Isn't it? Now, Antoine had been busy in the field long before the Denavals packed up in shame for Normandy, right? So on the 6th of July, he and his party arrived in Brussels, where a cowherd had been slain by the beast two days before. Now, Antoine discovered two sets of tracks on the site of the latest attack, that of a large male wolf and a she-wolf, which he suspected to be the beast's mate. Now, if the beast had in fact reproduced, Antoine surmised, the she-wolf and the whelps would have to be destroyed as well. <laughs> His first formal hunt occurred on the 11th of July, but yielded nothing. An activity amongst the huntsmen was sporadic for the remainder of the month due to heavy rains. But there was large-scale hunts again on the 24th and 28th. The beast, however, continued to assail the Gévaudanais, irrespective of the weather. So basically, regardless of the weather, come rain, come shine, come storms, the beast was attacking still yeah. and killing all the time. So several local government officials were soon the recipients of a communique from Antoine entitled Observation highlighting the extreme severity of the terrain in the Gévaudan, which Antoine found more difficult than that of any region he had hunted in the last 50 years. Wow, so, so just the steepness, the rain, the fucking craziness. That's right. I bet it's like foggy as well, he felt clouds getting exactly, stuck Exactly, it does, it. yeah. It, it, the mist was sweeping in and that, and it is, it's the most difficult place, including all of France, the locales of Germany, Piedmont and the Pyrenees. So he's hunted in all oh, these mountain regions and stuff. No, and I don't like it. No. So included in these observations, his observations, right, he also requested a dozen sergeants to organise the peasants who served as beaters during the large hunts and pleaded for a detachment of hounds and coursers to replace the dogs of his own pack, which were faring none too well. Now, because he'd sort of like be bringing things like scent hunters, like bloodhounds and things yeah. like that, this goes back to exactly what you said, is that the wet weather and everything was obviously washing away scent. Yeah. So it looks like the police bringing different hounds in now, like sound ha scent, ha well, sight hounds, things yeah. that will hunt by seeing these things and go after them. You know yeah. what I mean? So they've got a different sort of different ways, sort of chasers. That's yeah, the kind yeah. of dogs they're after now, rather than the mix it up hounds. a bit, isn't it? If yeah, it's working. The Duke of Pendievre who had already donated three of his personal huntsmen to Antoine's cause, was amongst the nobility to which Antoine sent his requests. So he's gone to somebody who's already helped out, yeah. and he's thinking, look, can you give us anything else, something more, please, you know? And I think he gets uh, he gets his request, he's accepted. That's nice. On the 11th of August, now this is a bit of a weird one, is it? If you remember from the very first uh, first result of this, the, the young cowherd who, who was attacked, and the bulls stepped in, right? Yes. Now her name was Marie Jeanne Vallette. Mm -hmm. Marie or Marie Jeanne Vallette, right? Now they say later on in the story the name comes back again. Now I can't work out whether it's the same girl mm. or just somebody with the same name. Right, yeah. But they were both mm -hmm. absolutely set in stone on the dates when they saw what was going on. Um, they they knew sort of like 
they recognised the beast and everything like that. Yeah. They were, they were sort of, that, that was the name of the girl who first saw the beast. Yeah. And this is a very important person, isn't it? But it comes again, it's this on the 11th of August, where Marie Jeanne Vallette. Now, I'm thinking, I'm guessing, mm. it might be the same well, it's girl. It's a bit of a bloody coincidence. It, I think it could be. But but then again, you see, in these regions, a lot of people, they have like a local name, like yeah, the Vallette name, and they might all be called Smith or something, yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? It's that kind of malarkey. Yeah. And, and uh, Marie Jean is very sort of like, very French. It might be just the name is, I don't know, like Sharon Sharon Smith or something. Yeah. It might be a very common name. But I, I somehow suspect it might be the same girl because of what happened next so she and a younger sister was attacked while fording a tributary of the river Desges or Desges I think it might be on the road from Polhac on Margaride to Brousson but this time she was prepared Valet successfully defended herself and her sister with a bayonet mounted on the end of a staff. <laughs> wow! And she wounded the beast, which threw itself into the river and thrashed about madly before escaping. God, she's done well there to drive it into a river. I know, she's pierced it, stabbed it, and ragged it into a river. God. This massive beast, right? Imagine that coming at you, though. God, that's scary. Well, Antoine and the company quickly made their way to the Polak, where they heard of this event, praising Marie Jean for her bravery. The royal gun-bearer compared her favor favorably to Joan of Arc, calling her the Maid of Gévaudan. <laughs> Unconvinced that the beast had been wounded to death, however, he remained in the field. Writing to Monsieur Saint-Priest, Antoine respectfully requested if a monetary reward for Marie-Jean Vallette would be forthcoming. By the way, he added, I have sent to the Royal Kennels for help, just in case the beast is not dead. While awaiting the arrival of this help, we shall gather all our strength and our wits to finish thereby the tragedy whose sad enactment has gone on too long. It's the times now, isn't it? Get yeah. hunting it if it's bleeding. Well, weirdly enough, there is there is a, a brilliant um, statue to Marie Jean Vallette, right? <laughs> and it's just like you're just a young girl with a spear piercing a beast. Oh, and that's, that's it. In France, it's in the massive central. God, it's really brought the heroes, hasn't it? This yeah, time, oh, like. absolutely, yeah. Antoine was in Bessieres on 19th of August for a special mass said in honour of the Holy Ghost attended by many members of the surrounding parishes and presided over by such notables as the prior of Privac, the prior vicar Noyazirol, and the vicar of Polac, Soges and Ventuges. A procession of Antoine's huntsmen in full dress led to the nearby castle of Berset, where a feast was held, followed by a celebration in honour of Saint-Louis, accompanied by fireworks, fusillades and the music of hunting horns. Because everyone thinks the beast's dead. Mm, I hope the kids aren't making it up for a thing. Well, education or a free feast. Well, this is an awful lot like. Is this not again like Jaws, where the tiger shark is yeah. caught? Oh, uh, what? <laughs> it's, we gotta be sure, man. We gotta be. <laughs> but it's like, you know, it's. They've all. I think they all just want it to be dead and over it's, and done. Yeah, and he's so been going on for so long, hasn't it now? Yeah, they're all a bit knackered, you know what I mean? The men were in good spirits after the festivities, some believing that Marie-Jean Vallette's bayonet thrust on the 11th of August had done the beast in. Their spirits fell when a woman of 22 was attacked near the village of Diege on the 2nd of September. Attacks increased in frequency through the first weeks of the month, 
or 8th, the 11th, 12th and 13th God. of September, resulting in four injuries and two deaths, and Antoine was at the verge of surrender. Had I the wit of Voltaire, he wrote to Sam Priest and Lafont, tantamount to resignation of the onset of winter, I could pen a moving farewell. So he's actually so despondent and down mm -hmm. in the dumps now. He's thinking, I can't do it. God. And this is this is the royal, you know, the royal gun kind. He's seventy bloody fall. <laughs> yeah, well, it's seventy one. Seventy one. Yeah. Right. But he, well, he is, and he's, he's he's in the winter of his years, sort yeah, of thing, yeah. you know. And he's he's up, and he's at the hardest task of his entire life. Everything he's been and seen and done and everything God. has led up to this moment, and he's been defeated. On the 16th of September, as he was composing his official withdrawal from the hunt, he was surprised by the arrival of two dog handlers and a dozen hounds, the progeny of the requests he had submitted at the end of July. Heartened, Antoine abandoned his surrender and again took to the field. Ah, cool. So on the 19th of September, three, three days after this, a huntsman informed Antoine that a large wolf had been sighted by Saint-Julien de Chazès and that a she-wolf and her whelps were nearby. Antoine and his party quickly moved in and on the 21st of September, a dog handler gave the good news that the entire wolf pack had been located in the Pommier woods, north of the Abbey of Santa-Marie de Chazès. The forest was soon surrounded. Antoine's hunting party, bolstered by the addition of 40 sharpshooters from Langiec and elsewhere, cool. moved into the trees. Houndsmen at the front. Antoine himself had set up at the exit to a defile known as the Béal Ravine. And it was there that he encountered the wolf as it emerged from the forest. Oh, here we go. His musket loaded with no less than five charges of powder, a ball, and 30 to 40 pieces of shrapnel known as wolf shots, oh right? Now, let's just go over that, right? Usually you have, like, um, a charge of powder, yeah, that's what yeah. you need for a shot. <laughs> he's got five of these bad boys in here, right? And he's not just got a ball, he's actually got all these other pieces of, like, well, like, buckshot kind of yeah. thing, you know? This is, this is known as wolf shot. He fired at a range of 50 yards. The kick of his weapon knocking him nearly to the ground. The wolf collapsed, having Whoa. taken the ball to his right eye, Oof. and all the shot hit his right shoulder and side. Oh, it was a good perfect shot. shot. Man. I... As Antoine raised the call of triumph to his fellow huntsman, the wolf struggled to its feet oh, what? and made straight for him, only to be put to flight by a shot from Richard, cousin to Antoine and one of the mounted gamekeepers supplied by the Duke of Orléans. The wolf, struck by Richard's shot, made a dash of 25 yards before at last dropping dead. The beast! Jeez, it got a shot beast. in the eye and its shoulder. What's he? Crikey. That was supernatural. Because of what... Well, that's mm. the feeling, isn't it? You know, this area of Chazers, as it's called, and this was known as Le Loup de Chazers, <laughs> the Wolf of Chazers, as it was afterwards known, was six feet long, slightly over three feet tall, and weighed 140 pounds. So it's, it's not... Monstrous. Is it, is it really? It's I not monstrous, it's, but it's it's it 
Jeff, it's a big wolf, but it's yeah. just not a monster. Is that the bloke wolf? Is that daddy wolf? That's the daddy wolf. Antoine was anxious to confirm without doubt that the dead animal before him was the beast, so it was soon taken to Besset, where a necropsy was performed by the surgeon Boulanger. Though no human remains were uncovered in its stomach or intestines, a number of individuals who had been attacked by the beast came forward and identified Antoine's wolf as their assailant. <laughs> How do they do that? By, by checking handbrake? <laughs> <laughs> yep. That's the one. <laughs> And it was included Marie-Jeanne Vallette, whom Antoine had called the maid of Gévaudin. His hopes confirmed, Antoine arranged for the embalming of the animal, whose carcass was to be presented before King Louis XV himself. (laughs) He deserves it. The death of the wolf of Chazès notwithstanding, Antoine was unable to locate the rest of the wolf pack. The she-wolf and her whelps remained unaccounted for until October. Oh, it was said that Antoine's son, having left his post at the Pommier Woods when his father Antoine let out his cry of victory, allowed the escape of the she-wolf oh, and whelps. Silly Billy. Yeah, that's the thing. So he left his position in the excitement and the wolf mm. slipped away. Oh. Antoine, fearing that the ferocity and hunger of the beast may have passed into its offspring, also resolved to destroy the she-wolf and its whelps. And ignoring premature celebrations of the events of 21st September, so from 22nd of September to the 3rd of October, Antoine and his party continued to hunt, but with no avail. On the 4th of October, however, Antoine returned to the Abbey of Saint-Marie-de-Chazers, where his huntsman wounded one of two wolves travelling together. Due to the evidence at hand, Antoine believed that the wounded wolf was one of the cubs, and moreover, it had suffered a mortal injury. Good. On 5th of October, Antoine again hunted in the forest of Chavez, and his marksmen shot and wounded the she-wolf, which escaped. His renewed activities had kept the beast's mate and its progeny at bay, and during this week they had killed nothing but sheep. On 13th of October, Antoine returned to Chavez at the behest of Madame de Guérin de Lugiac, prioress of Saint-Marie de Chavez, who reported the presence of two wolves in a timber preserve. After a pursuit of nearly an hour and a half, Regnaud, one of the eight gamekeepers from the royal captaincies of the hunt, wounded the she-wolf, and she was finished off by two sharpshooters from Langiec, 25 yards from where Antoine had fired on the wolf of Chazès, the beast, on 21st of September. So it's the exact same spot where the hunted, not yeah. just about the exact same spot where the, where the original beast was hit. The she-wolf was 26 inches at the shoulder and showed signs of having recently nursed whelps. Antoine, who believed the first whelp to have fallen on 4th of October, surmised that but one wolf remained. One whelp? One whelp. It's a funny name, he's whelp. <clears throat> yeah, it's, it's a soft... I think it's the, you know, a whelping... You know, you can't even get all, do- all dogs that's all whelps or sort of like yeah. pups or something, <laughs> you know what I mean? And on 17th of October brought the death of the last wolf, shot fittingly by Antoine himself. The carcass of the wolf and its mother were poorly preserved, unlike that of the beast, and prepared for shipment to Versailles. The reward for the slaying of the beast by now hovering at 10,000 livres, I don't know what that is. It's got me a lot. It's a good amount, yeah. So that amount, 10,000 livres, Antoine distributed it amongst the huntsmen while only taking a small fraction for himself. Well deserved, didn't it? They're all in it together. After more than four months in the field, Antoine departed, 
the uh, Gévaudan for Versailles on 3rd of November, reaching the court of the king where he received copious praise for his victory. The cross of the Order of Saint Louis, a pension of a thousand livres, and the right to add the image of the beast to his coat of arms. <laughs> <laughs> wow. There's probably someone out there that's got that as the coat of arms, aren't there still, you know what I mean? <laughs> that's cool. Well, that's true, yeah. yeah. Our family probably still bears it. Attacks ceased for a time after the destruction of the Loup de Chazès, the she-wolf and her whelps, but began anew on 3rd of December 1765 and continued on until the 19th of June 1767. It was the Gévaudan rustic Jean Chastel who ended the scourge of the wolves once and for all, mortally wounding the new beast at Mouchette during a hunt organised by Monsieur le Marquis de Apacher. It was guessed by many at the time that the whelp Antoine believed to be wounded to the death on the 4th of October was the animal killed by Chastel. Ah which had retreated into the Marguerite's range for two months, recuperating and growing in size and returning to continue the depredations of its sire. <sighs> and that is the story of the Beast of Gévaudan. Oh, oh, oh fantastic <laughs> tale. Still lots of questions in my mind, though. You know, First, it were a beast, wasn't it? It wasn't a wolf. You know, It didn't seem like it were going to go into that. Well, I'm of the opinion, personally, that I don't think the... So let's break it down a little bit, right? The way wolves kill, they aren't great man-eaters as such. Mm. You know, they don't generally choose humans as their prey. They're fearful of men. Yeah. For good reason, because we go around shooting, killing everything, yeah. you know. And also how a, how a wolf hunts is different. Now, we have got descriptions of the beast. So one of the, um, one of the descriptions, a contemporary account of the time said that the beast was reddish-brown with dark ridged stripe down the back. It resembles a wolf or perhaps a hyena, but big as a donkey. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh God! Long gaping jaw, six claws, pointy upright ears, and supple furry tail, mobile like a cat's and can knock you over. The cry is more like a horse neighing than a wolf howling. Now, these other accounts I've heard descriptions of what it looked like. Now it's a weird thing because a lot of the a lot of the accounts say it's got they say it's got like a it's talk about its snout. Yeah. But the snout actually in all the accounts I've read isn't a long snout. It's not like a wolf Wolf's snout. Yeah. It's not like a wolf snout. It seems to be different. But all the drawings, all the contemporary drawings of the time, are something more wolfish. And I think they were just basically describing what they could see. Now let me have a little look here. This is where you want a bit of a nosy at some of these. Now, Still, sometimes they know how to draw a wolf, don't they? Yeah. How do you draw something that you know they don't? Well, that's one of the pictures of the beast. Ooh, looks like he's got makeup on. Fruity yeah. wolf. Well, the, well, if you think about what's interesting about this, these are sort of contemporary, sort of printed plates of the time. These are almost like new processes. Yeah. Right now, if you look at it, right, it, it has used there's colour involved, which was difficult at the time. Yeah. You know yeah. What I mean, it was one of these things sort of appearing in the newspapers. And look there, we've got another picture of this wow, beast. Right. That's a crazy one. And isn't it? well, especially if you see in the size of the people who are on the figure. Right, <laughs> oh, <they>? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So it's basically what we're looking at, it's a massive, hairy, shaggy looking beast, again with a long tail. Yeah. This one, I mean... Have, wolves have long tails, <coughs> though. They, uh, they have, but I'll, you know, we'll, we'll have a little look at that. 
And um, that looks like a kangaroo. That's exactly what the description of this one says. It's mm -hmm. almost like you know, whereas it, in the in the text that goes with it, it's describing a beast. But the drawing itself, I think they just did the best to do what they could do. Yeah. The artists were limited by what they, they actually knew. Again, we've got a great beast here, sort of ripping away at a sort of a woman's clothes and stuff. This is particularly gory. If you look at the <laughs> oh, he's studying these heads around, these bits of rib cage. <laughs> he's not fuck out yeah, of everybody. Yeah, has that it. Yeah. <laughs> I like this one, that's my favourite. <laughs> 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 is that the one that's ripping her boobies out? Yeah, it does, it? yeah. It's basically, it's a big smiley looking wolf sort of thing, right? And it's like going, hi! <laughs> <laughs> he's got to this woman, he's going to stun up dancing yeah. with it. But, um, see, my a lot of my thinking of these things, oh, there's there's a shooting yeah, of it. Yeah, I'll that's good get one, it right, aye. But this, this one's giving it a bit of a dog's tail. Yeah. But my thinking of this is right, a lot of the way uh, wolves kill and hunt, they don't go necessarily for the head or shoulders. Right. Like they'll go sort of like lower down, they'll sort of like rip you to bits, just generally sort of like get you. Yeah. A way of, a creature does kill by going for the head, a big cat, and it has also mm. a long tail. Now, in this region, I don't think people have seen something like a, a massive puma or a, or a leopard, yeah. or a black leopard kind of thing, you know. I don't think they'll have seen it at all. All they knew was, well, it's sort of like as big as a dog, you know, yeah. I mean, as big as a, well, big as a donkey. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's a massive cat. I, I, I'm sort of of the opinion it could be something like that. Mm. Or, as they said before, they said, oh, it could be like a hyena, yeah. a striped, big striped animal. Yeah. But hyenas aren't as stealthy as, yeah. you know. The, the truth of the matter is, yeah, it could have been wolves. It could have been a wolf, I think. But, and it's also strange because maybe that male wolf, the big male wolf, had learned, actually, humans are an easy mark here. Yeah. You know, they could have been on the turn in the area. And, of course, what we have to take into account, too, is there's a lot of agriculture occurring in these areas. People become more and more densely populated. Yeah. There's less territory for a wolf like that to survive. Yeah. Um, so it might have just turned to what the nearest... You can get and the softest prey going is mm. his people, but I'm inclined not that the, those first accounts say he was like a wolf, but not a wolf. Mm. That goes back to the one that was shot and taken to old Louis, you know, the, the original beast. Yeah, um, did any reports on that? That it was a wolf or any. And was it the actual beast? You oh, know, was that the right wolf killer? I, I think more than anything else, if you were to ask Louis the Fifteenth when that wolf turned up, he, he'd have just said to everybody, "Yes, this is the beast." Because yeah. he just wanted, he wanted the business put to bed. Yeah, exactly. The reality is, though, even after everything that happened there, the killings did keep going. Yeah, there were. Yeah. The, and the, all right, they could have argued, they shot another wolf, and said, "No, this is a wolf that's been doing yeah. that." And I have read other accounts, which I've not put in this particular piece. Where the killings went even on, even past that. Wow. And they just kept going, but it, they, nobody wanted to answer to it. Everybody, the king was saying, I've had enough of this whole affair. Yeah, it's it's dead, it's in my front room. Yeah, that, that's basically <laughs> it. Yeah. But I, I'm of the opinion that, in my heart of hearts, I think there was something else doing the killing. Yeah. There was another beast out there, something voracious, ever hungry, um, much more cunning and 
again, a wolf, but not a wolf, something bigger and nastier. A werewolf! <laughs> well, this is something could be, you know, who knows? Who knows what it nice could be? Nice to know about. He doesn't seem, like, when he attacks, it really fucking attacks, doesn't it? And when he kind of hides, it really hides by yeah, the sounds of it. it's stealthy, it's quick. Once a month? Well, he wasn't doing once a month. If you look at how uh, fast he was doing it, sometimes he was doing four or five days on a trot. Yeah. Uh, but the, the death toll for this particular beast... Mm. They're saying he's between 100 and 500 people it could be killed in total. That's serious. That's it. This is one creature which is absolutely stupendous. He's he's, just torn through these. uh, these, It's it's a funny um, one to get a taste for, isn't it? You know, if someone becomes a man eater, it's like. Wow. It could be, it could be the case. That it's just, it, it's a wolf that's just decided this is the way I'm going to get my food. Yeah, you yeah. know, and it's and it's it's developed a superb way of hunting that you know, unfortunately, humans are the dinner. Yeah. You know, so there we have it. What do you think? Oh, oh it's a fantastic tale. Really, really enjoyed. It's a big beast, that. isn't it? Yeah, well researched. <laughs> I've read little bits about it before, but not as in depth as that. That yeah. one. well. Really well, I've covered everything there. I think I think I might have covered everything on all the major players, which I think actually, if anything, the most interesting are the people involved. The kids, the well out, you know what I mean? The lovely little spears. And little <laughs> stuff. So if you learn anything there, keep bayonets away from kids. Yeah. <laughs> oh, give them one. Give them a bayonet. Keep them safe. <laughs> Oh, is it that time already? Yeah. <laughs> well, like I say, we have a bit of a bit of meatier, meatier yeah. tale there. You see, so it's like you know. I like a meaty tail. <laughs> I've heard that. It's been written on Bob Dawes. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I always think I think we've we, we still have got time for one more. Oh, that's you know? nice. And we're going to do something that uh, it's historic, but not that not that far ago. But yeah. this was an amazing story. Is this? And this comes from the Aurora Prize website. It's called 25 Seconds Per Life, was this. So we're going to go to, uh, we're gonna go to Armenia for this one. Ooh. The exact cause of the accident involving one of Yerevan's trolleybuses on the chilly morning of September the 16th, 1976, remains unknown. Some said one of the passengers attacked the driver after a heated verbal exchange, causing him to lose control of the vehicle. Others claim the driver had a heart attack. As it entered a bridge in central Yerevan, the trolleybus veered off course and rolled downhill into a water reservoir known as Yerevan Lake. The noise of the crash drew the attention of athletes practicing nearby, and 23-year-old fin swimming champion Sharavash Kalapetian among them. Without giving it much thought, Shalavash jumped into the water, ordering his brother Camo, another swimming champion, to help him from the shore. It was scary at first. It was so loud, as if a bomb went off, and I almost drowned several times. I could just imagine the agony of those 92 people on board, and I knew how they would die, said Shalavash. So the bus is in the water, literally underwater, what? Yeah. Freezing cold, so it's, this is September oh. in Armenia. You know what I mean? <laughs> 
God, that's made my balls shrink up into my own body just thinking of that. The bus sank to a depth of 33 feet. Oh, what? The passengers were trapped in an iron sarcophagus. Shalavash first had to break a window to give people a chance to escape. He hit the glass as hard as he could, knocking it out. Now, one thing is here as well, this wasn't safety glass at the time. It was sharp yeah, copper yeah. glass, you know. And punching underwater, it's, everything slows down. It's exactly. Like, you, you've, just totally, you've just totally got it. It's, uh, everything slowed down. It's, it, it, just to smash the glass alone was yeah, an incredible thing. Massive. Yeah, There was a high chance that drowning people that was dragging out of the bus would instinctively cling to their rescuer uh. and drag him down. Him being a professional fin swimmer, Sharavash knew that it would be best to let them submerge him. At some point, the drowning person would reflexively let go and try to swim up. So, in each person he was trying to, he was letting them drag him to the bottom. They were giving up and letting go, and then he'd help them to the surface. Oh man! That's when he would catch them and pull the victim out of the water. It's in difficult moments like this your love for fellow humans grows even stronger, Sharavash wow. said in the documentary Swimmer. He dove into the cold, murky waters of Yerevan Lake 40 times, <laughs> going in and out through broken glass, forced to feel around for people in the pitch black. Oh my god. Each plunge took about 25 seconds. And on the last dive, on the verge of fainting, he emerged from the water, clutching a sea cushion instead of a victim. Oh. He says, I have nightmares about the cushion for a long time. Oh, man. I could have saved someone's life. Oh, God. Sharavash pulled 37 people out of the lake. Wow. And nine others escaped on their own through the broken window. The rescue operation was set up in a matter of minutes and doctors who arrived from a nearby hospital treated the victims right on the shore. Even so, unfortunately, only 20 of those that Sharavash rescued could be saved. Now, if you think of that, right, these guys were in the water, they were drowning, they'd been pulled out to safety. Sharavash was in the water, in and out, 40 times. <laughs> he was the one who was actually in the water longest. Oh, man. And, and he survived. Oh, he's one hard mother. Yeah. Sharavash Karapetian was hospitalised along with the victims of the accident. Now he's covered in cuts, right? And as a result, septic fever, double-sided pneumonia, that means both lungs, oh. and nervous prostration, had doctors fighting for his life for over a month. Oh, God. Right? So the nervous prostration is basically the, the sheer effort yeah. and the, the toll it's taken on his entire oh, body. man. When he was finally discharged, Sharavash went straight back to practice. <laughs> Swimming underwater echoed painfully in his lungs. Yet the athlete refused to retire without one more medal. <laughs> During the next championship, he swam in a haze as his brother Camo ran along the pool, ready to jump in should Sharavash suddenly lose consciousness. But Shalavash came in first and set another world record without realising it at the time. <laughs> oh man, you can't get out of can you? you like, oh. In the end, the swimmer had to quit the sport. He could no longer bear to be underwater. It made him nauseous. The man who was once called a goldfish and an amphibian <laughs> tried coaching, but after just two months, he went to work at an electronics manufacturing plant. Oh, bless 
The story of the heroic rescue passed from one person to another became an urban legend in Yerevan, and even though the Soviet press kept such accounts of accidents under wraps, Kalapetian's audacious, self-sacrificing rescue was publicised only six years later, uh, when Pravda Daily published an article by journalist Gennady Bocharov with no mention of the death toll. After the publication, tens of thousands of letters from all over the Soviet Union came pouring in for Shabarash, many of them simply addressed to the Armenian Republic, Yerevan Sharavash Karapetian. So they, oh, they didn't even need an address, they yeah. just needed his name and the, and the town <laughs> where he was. Unlikely as it sounds though, the trolleybus rescue was not the first time Sharavash Karapetian saved lives. Wow. In 1974, the young athlete prevented an accident involving a bus that carried 30 people. The driver had parked the bus to check on some mechanical issue, but left the engine running. Suddenly, the bus began rolling down an incline towards a mountain gorge. <laughs> Karapetian, who was on the bus, broke down the partition that separated the driver's compartment, grabbed the wheel, and steered the vehicle away from the abyss. He's <laughs> <laughs> rock hard. But then, in 1985, Sharavash Karapetian was walking along near the Yerevan Sports and Concert Arena when a fire broke out in the building. Sharavas was one of the first people rushing into the fire to help oh, the firefighters, man. getting burned and injured in the process. Uh. He said, anyone can find themselves in a place where somebody needs help, and more than once too. The main thing is to remember what makes you human. God. Today, Sharavas Karapetian coaches his son Tiga in hopes that the latter will continue his legacy as an of athletic achievement. He also heads the Shalavash Karapetian Foundation, which organises competitions for new generations of swimmers. Our whole lives, we all owe everything to each other, is something Sharavash tells young people at every meeting. I love that though, because you know, like the other story with that kid won a, a free um, education. Yeah. You think someone like that should be scooped up straight away, someone like him. Yeah. Med, med sure he's cool and he, his mental health is alright and getting over cushions and all that sort of stuff. But then he should be like a motivational speaker yeah, or going down schools yeah. or, yeah. Bloody do tests on him, you know what I mean? What, he's a philosopher. Well, well I, think, I think this is what's actually occurring in yeah. a weird way. You know, it says the outstanding swimmer's athletic career was cut short when he was on top form. And he was forced to retire from major athletics at the age of 24. That's all he was. <laughs> but he'd set 11 world records. He held oh, 17 God. world championship titles, 13 European championship titles, and 7 Soviet championship titles in underwater swimming. Wow. It's hard to imagine what else he could have accomplished had he been able to continue. Yeah. But Shadavash calls himself a happy man and believes the lives that he saved are the biggest achievement in his life. Indifference, he says, is a very mercurial phenomenon. It depends on the well-being of society. Kindness is nurtured by love and we have to teach our children to love each other from the very beginning. Oh man, I love him! Yeah. What a dude! And I believe the uh, Aurora—it's a prize. Uh, Aurora Prize is a website where people who are 
done incredible achievements in the world yeah. are actually sort of won this prize for them and I think well. he was up for this prize I don't know if he's won it or not I've not yeah. looked far enough into it well he should be though yeah. so yeah. just his outlook and life is fascinating yeah. and it's so cool well, can you imagine but, all that though but it, talk about right time at right place you know what I mean a bloody un, the best under underwater <laughs> swimming yeah. well, but if you think right. about that these the, two sides that you say for example we're talking about alternative dimensions and yeah. so this one dimension where that bus went into the water and nobody survived yeah yeah yeah. You know, another, and he was uh, just one man, yeah, man. Me. that is that, mental yeah. and the idea of just it, me, me or you going 33 feet oh, in each dive Man. and doing it nearly 40 times <laughs> I'm being proud of being in the middle of the sea I thought alright I'll, you know, I'll, I'll swim underwater and the where my, my big beer bloated belly to get underwater and actually swim down. It took me about twenty attempts to just get <laughs> to get the angle right, and then you know I got underneath like some bloated hippo boy. <laughs> it was proper hard. But he's just doing it like a fish, isn't he? You know, doing like a fish and guy. dragging people out of stuff. Yeah, that's especially that window. I know what a, what, a, what a talent you know. What yeah, I mean? yeah. You know, but then again, you know, where do you need? I mean, that kind of feat of endurance. What sort of person could endure that? Mm. There's not many people who take that kind of physical punishment and yeah. survive. Um. What? What's that noise? Oh God, no, it can't be back, Matt. Oh my it's God, no! Oh, let me just check the door. Oh, it's fucking Pete! What are you doing? You're looking alright. Can you remember out? My cockles and muscles are Right. Oh, that's alright then, yeah. It's scary. No, I don't know, I don't know. No, yeah, I, I think it's a nasty rashes all that, Pete. Yeah, you yeah. want to get a bit of cream on that, Yeah, kid. get a bit of cream, you'll be fine. Go on, yeah, get, get back get, in your boat. Get back in your boat. Fuck, fuck off, fuck off. Baby. Oh my God, yeah, there Jesus, he goes. How did he... I don't know. You talk about four bullets ending it. I think about more like six to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> God, he must be. But how's he got out of that grave? Man, he was a dug his way out of ring shot. I know it's a different, a different, uh, different breed of these. You see. Well, yeah. God, at well, least the thing is, you see, that'd have happened uh, when, when Robo Peter had been there. You know what I mean? <laughs> if he's down there trying to sort of like rob the bodies. Yeah. <laughs> Stay on the bus. <laughs> give, me, give me a ring. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there we go. Well, he's not doing any newspaper hiring, do he? He's oh, back again. Look at him. Look how fast he's going. He's a bloody machine. Know, we could have had Sammy Speedboat, though, couldn't we? Oh, no. Lovely Sammy. Hi, boys. Yeah. Oh. oh, well, next time. Yeah. <laughs> Get the Luga loaded. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it might take ten. Oh, <laughs> It's been a bit of a uh, a bit of a bumper bumper episode, but so what we'll do, we'll have to cut it short now. So, yeah, true. <laughs> so it's going to be a big bye bye from Matt. Uh, it's a big bye bye from Benny. <laughs> <laughs> Take care, guys. See ya. There are three ways you may contact Kraken Cove. Either by email at podcast at gmail.com on Twitter at Kraken Cove or Instagram at Kraken Cove Pod. Ha ha!